uh, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. This is talking about the authority of the Word of God. And we are wanting to stress that tonight because that is the locus of the battle that's going on. Does God's Word have authority or doesn't it? Or does man have the authority? So in Isaiah 55, 8, it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and they do not return there, but water the earth and bring forth fruit and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me void, but it will accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Father, we thank you that tonight we have time and we have the freedom to assemble when our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the globe tonight do not share the freedom that we have tonight. But we ask that you help us understand and sense the absolute authority of your word and in this particular area of marriage and family. Help me and uh, Dr. Woods and Dr. Dean clearly present your word and the difference between it and the contemporary thought all around us. May the refreshing rain of your word water our hearts tonight and tomorrow and accomplish the work of strengthening us as you gave it in history. For we ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. Most uh, seminars on marriage and family are concerned with relationships and so forth, and that's, that's it, the core of it. But tonight, uh, I want to start out with a little different t um, point here. If the trends that we observe in our culture, and we are observing in Canada, we're observing it in Europe, and we're starting to observe it in the United States in the legal areas, what we are teaching here tonight could be in the future, not too distant future, subject to civil law action as hate speech, as violation of American civil liberties and so forth and so on. We are dealing here with a very um, trying time in our culture. Most of us haven't lived through this sort of thing and I'm, those of you who been around for a while, uh, I'm sure you agree that th there's been changes and they're occurring very rapidly. Give you an example. My son, one of my sons, lives in Fairfax County in Virginia. Fairfax County used to be a relatively laid-back conservative area, but because many people that work for the government have moved there, it's sort of a PC place now. And last week, they had a board meeting of the Board of Education for the entire Fairfax, Fairfax County School District. This is the third time or the second time, I forget which time, the members of that board are insistent on teaching the various versions of sexual perversions to the elementary school and wanting to enforce curriculum changes on K through six and seven. Obviously parents are concerned. These are their kids, this is their property taxes, they're funding that school district. And yet, what happened was, they had over 1,200 parents address the board, either personally or in letters, saying, we do not want this, this is an invasion of the privacy of our families and we reject this and we are urging you as a Board of Education to stop it. The vote was 10 to 1 to go ahead and enforce it in spite of those parents. So this is what's going on. Granted, these are in, in certain areas of the country now, but just remember this thing is spreading and I want to show you why it's spreading and we want to get our thinking oriented to the issues at stake. Because you and I are going to be asked for why are we so adamant? Why are you Christians uh, so 
uh, reluctant to grant rights to these people. After all, we live in a free country. So I want to go through some of the uh, material here tonight from that standpoint. Um, a lot of the um, effect or the causes that are rooted in the culture around us actually are part of a movement that's been going on for 150 years in the West. And it's largely pushed by academia. Just keep in mind that the faculties in our universities are people who were raised in the 60s. So that puts it together. Um, you have radicals on the faculty. This is why Christian students, thankfully, we have a few Christian students with support from their parents, and by the way, there are very few that do this, who are adamant and are going to counter these situations. We have the Alliance Defending Freedom coming in legally into the court system on behalf of Christian students. The stu Christian students, a few of them, are standing up because they're not going to be intimidated and they're going to fight for their rights. And I've encouraged the several that I know to go to the book of Acts. Let's think about how Paul, so many Christians read Romans 13 and they think we're supposed to be a doormat for the civil authorities because Paul says respect the authorities. But let's watch Paul's behavior in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, that famous passage of evangelism where believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy family, where that is, if you read toward the end of chapter 16, you'll see that the local authorities, the civil magistrates came, they grabbed hold of Paul and put him in jail. And that's the story of the Philippian jailer. What we don't realize is that Philippi was a Roman army retirement community and was not under local authority, it was under the authority of Roman law, and Paul knew his rights. So come morning, when the civil authorities realized they had done a mistake, because Paul was a Roman citizen, and we did an oops, we wanna get him to just quietly leave town. So they say to the jailer, let Paul out, and let's not make a public spectacle of this. Actually, we have the first sit-in demonstration in the Bible because Paul refuses to leave the jail. He says, I'm not leaving this jail until you authorities in public come down and you let me out because I want to embarrass you in the front of the city of Philippi as violators of my rights as a Roman citizen. And then when Paul was accused by the Jewish people of various things, he appealed, he said, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm gonna invoke my Roman authority. So there you have, yes, we respect the institution of civil authority. That does not give us the uh, mandate to accept everything that's done in the name of civil authority because clearly there are rights. We live in a constitutional republic and we have something called the Constitution. So we have these, these rights and we are to use them. Now, a thing that I've noticed on the campus, I try to keep in contact with college students because I always think of my Christian college student friends as my cultural informants because they tell me what's going on in the classrooms. And I always listen to them very carefully and try to help them and coach them in how to deal with the situations. And I've learned a lot from doing that. But one of the contemporary things that is behind the movement we're addressing tonight is the argument, and, and here's the symptom of it, and then I'll tell you what it is. Ask if you have a college student around. Ask him or her if they had a course any time in their four years at college in Western Civ. I doubt you will find one college student in a hundred who has been required to take a course in Western Civ. You know why that is? because Western Civ is considered to be Western civilization as the civilization that oppresses people. It is considered to be the bad thing. Particularly, it is considered to be an example of white privilege. Now let's straighten something out right here. White people in Europe were killing each other, were as brutal to each other as any other place on earth. It wasn't white privilege that made Europe and Western civilization the great civilization it was. You know what it was? It was the influence of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That gave West the basis for science. It gave the West the basis for integrity and economic transactions that lowers the cost of business and so forth and go on. There's a great book out there by Mendel Mendelwadi, who is an Indian Christian, served in the parliament in India. And he's looking at the West as an Indian. And he's saying, what are you Christians doing? You're throwing out the book that gave you what the finest civilization on earth. And his book is called, the, uh, the, the, the title of it is, The Book That Made Your World. The story of how the Bible created the soul of Western civilization. And that's from a non-Westerner. He's looking at us from the outside. And it's a wonderful book because it makes you realize that we have been sown uh, a whole bunch of myths uh, in this social awareness movement. But I want to, because we are in a uh, situation of looking at the Word of God, the slides I have will be a little different from the other fellas. I'm using the background and the PowerPoint slides of what I teach a cor uh, for a course I teach at Schaefer Seminary. I teach a course called uh, Biblical Framework. And this is a first year uh, course given to students so that they will understand the authority of the Word of God in every area of study and every area of life. The Bible is not just a little religious book that we kind of peripheralize off to the right side of our, our vision. So we use this course to train young men and women to think biblically. Now, it's not a, a detailed course. It, it, I'm just trying to hit the highlights. So let me uh, give you some of the things we say about the Bible. One of the things we, I try to point out is when we hold this book, it, this isn't a book. This is a library of books, of epistles, of songs, and poems. Now, think about it. It's a book made in three languages. It was gradually written over 2,000 years. Now, let's just think about that. Three languages in 2,000 years, 66 items, by over three dozen authors. And the people that God selected to write in this library were people from every social strata. It was small-scale businessmen, the fishermen of Galilee. It was royalty. It was statesmen that basically were involved in the highest areas of Persian politics. These are the kind of people that wrote this. When we read that the Bible is sufficient unto every good work, you know why it's sufficient unto every good work? Because God the Holy Spirit could take this person, this person, this person, this person from every level of society to tell us how we are to live our lives. Not only that, but we can go through the Bible and we can see these people, men, are writing and women involved too, they are people who are writing out of their own experience. They are writing about tragedies. They are writing about suffering. They're writing about victories. They're writing about everything that we say. And so the Bible is a library and it's set up to address every area of life. The other thing to think about in the Bible is after this was done over 2,000 years, has it ever struck you that it's amazingly coherent? Can you think of any other library in history that has been written over that long? Take, for example, Mortimer Adler's great books of the Western world. There's not a continuity in there. There are various big ideas that Adler follows. But the Bible has a continuity. That's one of the evidences of its supernatural origin. For 2,000 years, you maintained a coherence, and that's because God is coherent. God's thoughts are rational. God's thoughts are compatible with all of the different parts of it. And then the other thing to remember about the Bible is that in the Bible, there are things which you call covenants. But the word in the Hebrew for covenant is actually the word for contract, bereath. And the, one of the early uh, 
pioneers of, of biblical archaeology in America was uh, Albright from um, Johns Hopkins University. And before he died, he made this statement. Israel is the only nation on earth in all of history that had a contract with God. Now think about that. You want a difference between biblical faith and non-biblical faith? There's a contract. Now let's think about what that means, a contract. When we enter into contracts, why do we enter into a contract? Why, does, why do you have to enter into a contract with a bank to get a loan? Because it's defining the relationship and once the contract is set, what then happens? You better make your monthly payments or there's a problem. Why? Because the contract authorizes in detail what this relationship is going to be and therefore it has to be tracked in history. The contracts that God made with Noah, he made it with Abraham, he made it with David, he made it with the nation Israel, he makes, he's going to make a new contract with them. Every time you see covenant, every time you see that word, think about a contract and think about what it implies. How do you interpret a contract, allegorically or literally? Try interpreting your mortgage agreement allegorically. You see what it does? If you get the mindset of what our, the God of the universe has condescended to come down to our level, lock himself in a contract, and obligate himself to behave certain ways, and you won't find that in any other religion. You certainly are never going to find it in Islam because to, for Allah to descend, to condescend, to restrict himself by a contract would be to the Muslim theologian just absolute heresy, violating the very essence of what it means to be God. So this is why the first historians in history were not Thucydides and Herodotus like I learned in social studies. Wrong. The first historians in history were the Jews that wrote about the history and whether God had fulfilled his promises. They had a motive to study history. When I went to school, I could care less. I, was an, I didn't become a Christian until college. History was a waste of time. I just learned all the tests, got 100 on the test, forgot all about it until the next week. Go through the same rigmarole. History was just a pile of marbles until I became a Christian. And then I realized that history is his story and it has coherence. And I better learn history because all of us are gonna face him having lived in this life as mortals. So we better know our history because it's, we have an inescapable appointment with a God of creation. What we wanna do um, now is we wanna revert to a New Testament passage and I want to show you a method of thinking that brings the authority of Scripture into every area. In particular, we want to talk about marriage and family. Theologians have two labels for God revealing himself. One label is called general revelation. And what that means is God makes things, he engineers things, and we can look at the things in creation and reflect on his brilliant engineering. Those of you who might be interested in, in the medical side of things, the Institute for Creation Research has just come out with a four video set done by a man who has his MD as a doctor and his PE as a professional engineer. And he brings those two disciplines together in an amazing way and he's created these four videos on the human body. It's called In His Image. And that first lecture that Dr. Galozzo gives is an illustration of what happens when a baby is born. We don't even understand, we take it for granted. Babies are born all the time. But if you understand what happens to that baby's body in moving from an all water environment to an all air environment within several hours, the systems that have to change. All of that baby's nourishment is coming through the placenta and the umbilical cord. And the moment he's out of the mother, that has ripped away, and now he has to air breathe. If he tries to air breathe inside the womb, he would drown. 
what changes the breathing apparatus. And he goes through this, and you sit there and you look at what it takes for a baby to be born. Every system has to work or that baby dies. And there are innumerable systems that change, hormones change. There's a hole in the human heart that has to be filled in within hours of the baby's birth or his heart fails. His liver has to be turned on because it's not totally functioning inside the womb. It doesn't have to. The mother's liver is operating this way. The baby's systems have to take over. Now that is not a chance product. So this is what I mean by general revelation. And of course, what's missing in our education, because we've all been through secular education, unless we've had the advantage of Christian school, we have learned, let's think about this, from our kindergarten to the 12th grade, 13 years of our most formative time in life, we have learned every single subject as though God doesn't exist, or if he does, he's irrelevant to this subject. Then we become Christians, and we start to read the Bible. How can we expect to be masters of the word of God by listening to 40 or 50 minute sermons once a week when the entire world is drumming its doctrine, its view of general revelation? It's not general revelation. These are chance products over and over and over and over. It takes you years to think through the implications of the word of God. So that's general revelation. Now, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are going around and in the garden. God's talking to them. What does he tell them to not do? Not to eat of that tree over there. Now, if he had not told them, what would have happened? You see, even in innocence, even before the fall, the word of God was necessary. Why was it necessary? Because we have to understand his thoughts that we correctly interpret the world around us. Yes, it's general revelation, but we don't get the right interpretation of the general revelation unless we start with a verbal revelation of the word of God. So um, here's an axiom, here's a procedure, here's a principle. When we deal with marriage and family, the sexes and the structure of men and women is part of general revelation. We are built certain ways. It is part of God's engineering. But how we act and how we operate, has, we have to be told to do that. We can't create this with a survey. We can't create this with 50, uh, an author that's written 50 books because it's too limited. We have to understand how the creator wants us to live. And we don't know that if he doesn't tell us that. And where has he told us that? The Bible. So that immediately brings the Bible in authoritatively. And I'm making this point, I'm stressing this point right now, because what's not happening in the discussions is the word of God is systematically excluded at the point one, and I'll show you how that happens. Okay, we have God's intelligent design everywhere. Romans 1, it's clearly seen by this. And then we have, um, and we are ready now to turn to Genesis 1. Because now, part of the strategy of our seminar is I am assigned the topic, let's look at marriage and family previous to the fall. Then Dr. Woods is going to deal with the fall and how that works. And then Dr. Dean will explain the, what do we do now, this side of the fall. Okay, so now we're turning back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, 26, God said. This is God speaking. Now, this is interesting, verse 26, because it's an intent. It's God's thoughts about what he wanted to do. Obviously, he must have told Adam and Eve this, but the point is, if you think about what is in verse 26, it's his inner thinking. That's not available to finite creatures unless he, with his omnipotence and his omniscience, tells us that. So God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now there's a wealth of material just right here, and we can only skim it and highlight it tonight. But when he says, let us make man in our image, there's a sort of inherent plurality in the Godhead. 
And why this is important is a simple reason. If God is a solitary being, what object can he exercise love toward? See, people think the Trinity, our Trinity, oh, you know, that's a hard thing. Yes, it is hard because it's talking about the nature of God. But do we realize that it's the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, so that he didn't even have to create to exercise love. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. They have a communal, personal relationship. So you can have a personal God if you have this plurality of personality. Solitary deities don't have personal relationships unless they create something external to themselves. But if they create something external to themselves, they're dependent. They're not self-contained. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity is important in, in first, uh, Genesis 1.26. It's not developed here, of course. But the point is God is personal. And he's going to make something special. And he says what's going to characterize this, I'm going to make man in our image. So... That means that we are not just uh, sophisticated uh, uh, chimpanzees. The biologists are always telling, oh, there's a parallel between chimpanzee DNA and human DNA. Yeah, in a section. What about the other part of the genome? Well, that's just junk DNA. Well, no, it isn't, because now recent research, and thank the Lord, we live today with more resources on God's general revelation because two men back in 1960 wrote a book. I'm talking about John Whitcomb and Henry Morris. Those guys faced the academic wrath of every university in this nation when that book was published. They couldn't even get a Christian publisher to publish the book. They had to go around the back door to find one Christian publisher that would dare to publish The Genesis Flood. That book created the modern creationist movement. And there's second and third generation PhDs now doing all kinds of wonderful work. There is no generation in the 2,000 years of the Church of Jesus Christ who has had more data, more support for interpreting the Bible correctly and literally. And yet we have people flying all off, getting involved with this and that. How silly. They're not even informed about what their brothers and sisters who are working very hard, I might say, all kinds of things discovered which we can't cover tonight because of time. All right, Genesis 1.26. The next part of 26 has all kinds of implications for environmentalism. Notice what it says. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's a book written called Nazi Oaks by Mark Musser. Mark traced back this Genesis 1.26, and you know what? In the 19th century, there were several men who had read 1.26 and said, see, this is the Jewish book, and that is responsible for the Jews in Germany who financed the Industrial Revolution and all the pollution came out. That was one of the sources of Nazism. It came out of a hatred for Genesis 1.26 because at least they understood the implication is that we're not part of nature. We are not part of nature. We are unique creatures. We're made in God's image. Monkeys aren't made in God's image. And part of being made in God's image, and it flows into marriage, is the fact that we have personal. We are made to have personal relationship. So we'll go further. Genesis 1.27 so, God created man in his own image. Notice image is singular. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the, one of the implications of that is that maleness and femaleness are both rooted in the character of God. This is a very lofty, and very amazing thing, you won't find this in any other literature other than the Bible. Well, we come now to um, this slide. Every one of my students knows this slide. We go over this, and we go over this, and we go over this, over and over and over. I never get tired of doing this because it shows you what we're facing here. On the left side, 
we have a, a whole series in history of how God's word was transmitted. It started with ancient monotheism. These were the sons of Noah. This was the early part of our civilization after the flood. And people say, oh, well, they were all primitive back then. No, they weren't. They built engineering things. The first pyramid is more engineeringly perfect than the older pyramids. These people had came off that boat with high technology. And they came off the boat with a Bible that must have included at least the first six chapters of Genesis. Okay, then we have ancient Israel as the writer and custodian of the Bible. And then in recent years, in the 20th century, we have fundamentalism. But I want you to proceed further. Look at the next item in that list. There is the creator-creature distinction, and that is the fundamental thing that divides the, the bad guys and the good guys. On the right side, pagans don't have a creator-creature distinction. It's all pantheistic. It's all spectrum. And there's no moral value there. There can't be a moral value because molecules don't have morals. What are you doing getting ethics? Don't quote your ethics at me. You don't have a qualification to say something is right and something is wrong. I don't either. The reason I can say something is right and wrong because I listen to the creator who revealed himself. That's the only basis of ethics. And ultimately down below, here's the, here's the bottom line. As they say in investing, follow the money. Well down the bottom of the line, follow the responsibility. On the left side of that diagram, it makes all of us ultimately responsible to our creator. So you can say what you want to, we can live the way we want to, but in the end, we are responsible before our maker. The other side, we're all passive victims. Blame it on somebody else, blame it on the universe, but don't ever accept personal responsibility for anything. So now we come to how the Bible is coherent and I want to show you a quote from one of the church fathers. And the reason I show you this is because Tertullian, this particular father, had this neat picture, visualizing God in Eden, stooping down and molding the earth into the first human body. Now look what Tertullian does with this. He says, imagine God, wholly employed and absorbed in it, with his hand, his eye, his labor, his purpose, his wisdom, his providence, and above all, his love, which was dictating the ligaments of this creature. Whatever was the form and expression which was then given to the clay by the creator, Christ was in his thoughts as one day to become man because the word too was to be both clay and flesh. See why we're not chimpanzees? We are created with bodies that made Christ able, the Son of God, able to become incarnated. You see how this connects? That we, what, you know, from one slide to the other, we, we've just been talking about Genesis 1, now we're talking about the incarnation in the New Testament. But people that think clearly, like Tertullian here, that match it up. And this is how you discipline yourself mentally to think through the implications of the Bible. We, ha this, we have to develop this because we don't, it, our educational system doesn't provide the tools. We have to train ourselves to think this way. Now one of the problems we face with this whole marriage family thing is due to this man, Sigmund Freud. And the people that are pushing these agendas probably never even read Freud. They don't have to have read Freud, they just inherited his ideas. Freud did this. And this is from Rosaria Butterfield, who herself was a leading lesbian activist who became a Christian, and she had her PhD in these studies. Rosaria knows what she's talking about. So here's what she says. This is one of the most illuminating quotes I have ever seen. The concept of sexual orientation was first used by Freud, and its effect, if not intent, was to radically resituate sexuality from its biblical creational context to something completely new. The foundational drive that determines and defines human identity by defining humanity according to sexual desires and segregating it according to its gendered object, Freud was, intentionally or not, suppressing the biblical category of being made in God's image, male and female, and replacing it with psychoanalytic character of sexual identity. 
take hold of this someday and when you have some radical telling you about, well, I believe this, just say, I'm not a disciple of Freud. I'm a disciple of Jesus. So these ideas are out there in the culture and we just have to identify where they come from. Now, just a few, a few words about God's image and, and the male and the female. Think of these words that Jesus spoke on Palm Sunday, or close to it. Matthew 23, 37. Remember, as he was looking at Jerusalem, knowing he was only hours away from being crucified, in Matthew 23, 37, we see these words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. There's the mother's instinct. That's a feminine emphasis. Jesus, in that point, is revealing the fact that in God himself, it's, the, it's almost like what God did. He, he took the image of God and he bifurcated parts of it and distributed it so that there's a, almost a division of labor in history. So there's no patriarchy, there's no diminishing of the value of, of women. Example, another example, is the whole book of Proverbs. Lady wisdom is a lady. Isn't that interesting? Wisdom is pictured as coming from the woman. And it's the mother who is telling her son, not the public school, not the church, it's the mother in the home who is telling the boys, watch this, here's what you want, here's your relationship. Because this is the power of the mother. Dads don't do this very well. We all know, all of us have been married more than three days, know that we, are, we think differently. And the point is that women fill in our gaps. We, we, we blunder along, and I know I've had this many times. My wife, she doesn't deliberately humiliate me, but you all married men know what's going on. Um, they point things out, uh, honey, did you notice this? No, no. Uh, this is the interaction that goes on between the man and the woman. It's because they are, they're made differently. It's not the choice. It wasn't you chose to be male because you felt like it when you were uh, three years old. And uh, you ladies, you, you didn't. Three, at age three, choose to because you had these feelings, this was your anatomy. And so now we've even changed the medical terms. Now instead of saying the declaring the sexual of a baby, it's assigned. That's the word now. It's assigned as though it can be changed. So watch the verbiage. Okay. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice what he says, be fruitful and multiply. There's the family. Now there was a clergyman back two or three hundred years ago called Thomas Malthus. And Malthusianism has infected academia. I see it in the environmental area. It's always the pressure that, oh, there's a fear of overpopulation. There's no fear of overpopulation. God has perfectly allocated natural resources of the planet to be sufficient until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. The problem is not the, not the lack of resources, it's the lack of inventiveness and the lack of economic opportunities that go this. Let's take an example. 300 years ago, what did people do to light their house? They used whale oil, okay? As the population expands, what would have happened to the whales? They would be extinct because we ran out of whale oil. Oh, we ran out of this. There's a guy, Thomas Jefferson, came out with a light bulb. So we don't worry about whale oil. You see, the bottom line is that every baby comes with a brain as well as a mouth. God has given intelligence for man, because man, unlike chimpanzees, is made in God's image. And so this idea of population dense, there are population density in, uh, limits, but it's usually due to poor sloppy economics, poverty caused by political fighting and infighting and so forth. 
but there's no inherent danger. All you have to do is fly across the United States. We are not an overpopulated nation. Now let's turn to Genesis 2. Here's uh, zooming in on what happened on the sixth day. In Genesis 2, 20, it says, for Adam there was not found a helper for him, and Adam said, this is now when he recognizes, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. The word there for, for a helper is the word Eitzer. And Eitzer is used in the Bible for God himself. So clearly, it was not good that man be alone. And that shows you why one possible reason why God divided, so to speak, his image into male and female to compel relationships so that it makes the, the man, in this case, empty. And so he, he's, 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 something's missing here. And so by doing this, it, it tends to attract and have people have enough incentive to enter into a deeply satisfying person relationship that was missing with Adam. And then it says later, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother he will be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. One of the reasons commentators have given about this, why that's in there, is because in the Near East, Middle East, there was a tendency toward tribalism. So young men never got the full responsibility. In other words, he wouldn't make a, couldn't make a decision, he'd have to talk to his grandfather, and the grandfather would have to talk to the great-grandfather. And everybody would get involved in the decision. That's not the way God wants to run a family. It's the, the guy has to have responsibility and he has to learn how to do it himself. And so that was a, we call it the nuclear family, people call it. And they were both naked, man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And the reason they weren't ashamed is because before the fall, there was openness and harmony. And this is the state of the pre-fall. That's the way God designed marriage. Now I want to take you to understand the attack against what we just did. We just went through Genesis 1 and 2. Here is what happened in the same-sex marriage debate. You had it here in New Mexico. I had it in Maryland. There are three out of the four assertions have absolutely no logical continuity. Watch the phony logic used by the same advocates of same-sex marriage. Look at number one. It's a hidden presupposition in their argument that marriage is only a social contract, not rooted in designed sexual distinctions. They don't want to bring this up, but you see, what happens here is if you listen to the debates, they call marriage a convention, or they call it a tradition. Even conservative people say, well, I'm arguing for traditional marriage. Don't argue for traditional marriage. That misdefines the argument. We are arguing for the cre created divine institution of marriage. Once you argue that it's tradition, they can say, well, traditions change. Now what happened to your argument? See, the argument hinges on the fact of the sexual design of God. So it's a direct denial of biblical faith. So here's the argument now. You read it in newspapers and so on. Usually they don't mention it like I'm doing here at point number one. And the reason they don't do it is because they don't want to aggravate clearly. They don't want to reveal clearly that they're rejecting the Christian faith. It's not quite politic to do that. So we develop insidious ways of coping. So marriage is only a social construct. It's only a tradition. It's only a convention. Well, no, it isn't. So before you even talk about equality, you've got to deal with this. This comes before equality. Equality doesn't matter. You take a, a fourth, fourth grader in arithmetic. Before you put an equal sign between two numbers, what do you have to do? Be sure they're equal. Then you say they're equal. You, you, you have conventions there and the, the way math is done. You don't say something is equal if you can't justify why it is equal. And point one invalidates their equality argument. It's not the case that marriage can be changed. So don't tell me about you're going to use equality because 
two different people who aren't male and female. That's not what marriage is. Two, marriage involves no more than two people. It's purely arbitrary. Wait, wait till the polygamists get hold of this. You watch, it's gonna come. We can marry three or four people. There's no inherent limit on marriage by their argument. They have not defined why marriage should be two. I can say, why can't it be three? Give me a reason why it can't be three or four. Well, we never did it that way. Well, we never had this before either. Number three, no harm will come from redefining marriage. Okay, this involves another thing, and in the remaining time, I just want to address this. This is another little trick that's being used over and over and over. It's the do not harm argument. Those of you who have studied ethics know it comes out of J.S. Mill's Utilitarian Ethics. The idea is what is right and what is wrong can be determined by whether it does damage. The fallacy in this particular thing is how do you compute the harm versus the benefits? That's a calculus. How do you do that? How do you have enough information? Let me give you an example. Oh, abortion does no harm. My wife works in birthright. Let me tell you, you know, half the women that come in that counseling center are over 50 who had an abortion in their 20s and they still aren't over it. They're still grieving over it. Let them tell you what harm was done. And the harm medically. The woman, is, as she's pregnant, the hormones are building up, they're constructing a baby. For heaven's sakes, it's a construction project going on here, and you come in and run, stop it. What do you suppose all the hormones happens to the uh, circulating female body? It never resolves because the baby's never born. So th these are illustrations of before you say it won't do any harm, you better start thinking, how do you know it doesn't do any harm in the long run? See, God knows the long run because he created us. So isn't it a little smarter to pay attention to the Bible in all these other areas? He can tell us whether it's going to harm or not. Then finally, all couples should have equal access to marriage. Well, that's, that follows only if you got snookered by the first three points. Here's, here's what's happening in our society. This is a law professor. Dr. Smith writes out of San Diego University Law School. He wrote a very incisive book called The Disenchantment of Secular Discourse. And what he's talking about is what's going on in the courts. And the reason he picks the courts is because the courts supposedly have more rationality, more careful deliberation, and so forth and so on. But notice what he says. In contemporary political uh, uh, liberalism, reasonableness denotes a willingness not to pursue for vital public purposes what one believes to be the ultimate truth, based upon the judgment that reason will not lead to social unity, which can be maintained only if people agree not to make important public decisions on the basis of arguing about what is ultimately true. See what he's saying? If you deal with deep issues, what's going to happen? we're gonna divide because there are gonna be believers out there and unbelievers. So we don't wanna divide society, so we'll conduct this charade of never getting into deep issues. And of course, you don't have community here because it's a facade of community. There can't be a unified community this side of the fall. Show you some more things that are going on in the courts. Secular legal hostility to biblical faith. Now I want you to watch this. Probably most of you today, and with looking at your age, uh, your grandparents. But you've got you've got your children who are raising their children. Now look at look at this is a law journal. Judges today have full dockets. They haven't got time to do research on every single case. Where do they get their ideas from? Reading the law journals. Now look at what they're reading. This essay explores the choice many traditionalist Christian parents, both fundamentalist and evangelical, make to leave public schools in order to teach their children at home, probably like the 1,200 parents in Fairfax County. Thus, in most instances, and now look at this little snide remark. In most instances, escaping meaningful oversight. 
Society need not and should not tolerate the inculcation of absolutist views that undermine toleration of difference. If a parent subscribes to an absolute belief system premised on the notion that it was handed down by a creator, that it was echoed in stone, wretched in stone, and all other systems are wrong, the essential lessons of a civic education often seem deeply challenging and suspect. Such private truths have no place in the public arena, including the public schools. What are you gonna do with that one? You see, parents have to deal, you, you may not be able to homeschool. You may not be able to afford a Christian school. I understand that. But if you think that your grandkids are gonna come out all right with this kind of stuff going on in the curriculum. You got a long way to think this through. Parents every single day have to dialogue with their kids. Of course, the problem is nobody has family supper together, so we don't dialogue with our kids. They're out playing hockey or baseball. But the point is that if parents don't do this, the kids are not gonna come out right. This is absolute hostility to the family and to marriage. Here's another one. There must be legal and constitutional limits on the ability of homeschooling parents to teach their children idiosyncratic and illiberal beliefs and values, so forth. Parental control over children's basic education. Notice this statement. Think about this from the standpoint of the Word of God. This is a law journal. Parental control over children's basic education flows from the state States delegate power over children's basic education to parents. Ever read Deuteronomy chapter 6? Who's training kids according to Moses? It's the parents. The parents may hire teachers to help. The parents may contract parts of it out. But the parents are responsible for this. And folks, today, our family structures are weak in this area. We're busy, 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 busy. Distracted, 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 distracted. Can't even get together a family meeting without everybody doing this on their smartphones. We're not talking to each other. These are the disciplines that need to happen or our children are gonna be drift. It's just hard. We're sorry, but this is the way it goes. And uh, I won't, we don't have time to deal with this quote, but he's just basically saying what's, what's happening. We're never discussing the basic issues. So I want to summarize now. God's original design for marriage. Thinking through some of, the, some of the basic things here. Maleness and femaleness both derive from God's image. It did not derive from personal feelings of sexual orientation according to Freud. Freud is the guy. Let's pin the, pin the needle on the donkey where it belongs. This is Sigmund Freud, and these people may not have read Freud. They are Freudian disciples that are compelling Freudianism to dictate school policy toward my grandchildren. Is that right? Doesn't Jesus have an authority equal or better than Freud? Two, the purpose of this divine institution is to build future culture through creating a family and preparing children to expand man's dominion over nature. That was the whole point. Think of Adam and Eve if they hadn't have messed up in the garden. Would, it, would that have made a difference in human history? See, one family, all it takes is one family to produce a whole bunch of people that change society. And it happens, starts with that nucleus, the godly nucleus of people that pray about it, Every family's not gonna, not gonna come out right. We all know that. There are gonna be glitches and so on because we live this side of the fall. But the original design of the family was an institution. Think about this. Adult children don't, uh, you know, they don't become adults until maybe 20s. What animal do you know that keeps its babies for 20 years? Very few. Why then does this creature called man and women, why do we keep our offspring for 20 years? It's to train them because they are gonna be the cultural engines of tomorrow. Third thing, the purpose of the divine institution, and, and Dr. Dean will get into this further, 
purpose of the divine institution is to reveal within mortal history the relationship between Christ and the church. The only reason I point this out, I'm not trying to, uh, to go uh, into Dr. Dean's uh, domain here, but I'm just showing you this because it shows you if you listen to God, his instructions about marriage and family have in mind these heavenly things that no sociologist could ever pronounce. How is a sociologist gonna know that the marriage has meaning in its relationship to Jesus Christ reigning from the Father's right hand and the Holy Spirit working in the body of Christ? Show me a psychologist or a sociologist that can scientifically arrive at that conclusion. See what I'm saying? Marriage is far more complicated, the whole institution, far more profoundly involved in history than any sociologist is gonna say. Finally, fourth, experience from pre-fall an unhindered open interdependency, a team of dominion with a division of labor that was not competitive. Those are the, that's basically the summary of marriage and we could go on uh, about this. I would just want to terminate, I, I'm running it just a bit over, but I want to show you two slides to show you how when God created the legal system the policies of Israel, he built in wisdom. Think about this. For 800 years, there was a mini kingdom of God physically existing in history with God making the policies and enforcing the policies. Doesn't that say to you that maybe we ought to study the history of Israel? to see how God administered a nation, how policies worked out. I built this chart, and again, I'm I'm whipping through this thing fast, but there's a chiastic structure, the Ten Commandments. Notice if you kind of take the first and second together, uh, in Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 10, God alone is worthy of worship and service. Then you contrast it with uh, verse 21, the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. What is coveting? It's when we are dissatisfied with how God is providing for us, so we covet something. The second, uh, third commandment, accuracy and length, take, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Then you go down to the ninth, thou shall not commit perjury. What do those two commandments deal with? Language, don't they? Integrity of communication. Then we have the verse 12 through 15, management of labor, six days you shall work, seventh day you will rest. Then in verse 19, you have thou shalt not steal. What do you steal? Property. Then we come down to the honor your father and your mother, verse 16. Then in verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. Both have to do with marriage and family. And then finally, in the center of the chiasm is life. So if you invert that diagram, you get a kind of like a design of how God has worked this out. First, there's a hard allegiance to God or it's reverse, a dissatisfaction with God. The next thing is the next layer of commandments is integrity of communication. Why is that important? How do you build any society if you have no integrity of communication? Can any of you guys run a business with your accountant cooking the books? Everything depends on integrity of language. Then you go up one more labor, labor and property. Business depends on what precedes it. You have to have people who have integrity of language in order to labor and have property. Then you have marriage and family. Notice it comes after. What supports marriage and family? Every marriage and family is a small business. You have to have some wealth. You have to have some property. That's why in the ancient world they had dowries. What was the dowry for? To solidify the economic basis of the marriage. And then finally, you have life protected. Well, that's a very, very, very hasty, very quick thing that I've, I've worked through here, but I just wanted you to get some f- taste of the fact that we are up against it, people. We are up against it intellectually. We have people who are not, really, who are not well-schooled in how to discuss something. That's why we skip over to, well, I'm all for equality. Well, so am I. And so, uh, wh- so tell me about why. See, there's no discussion. And then we have the fragmented, distracted nature of our culture today, where everything comes first, the word of God, number 13 or 14, down the line. And we're gonna pay a price for that. 
Our marriages and our family are under assault in every area. This is not to be discouraging because we know that God is sufficient. He designed marriage. We have to listen, verbal revelation, and say, Lord, what, how, you, how did you design this to function? And he'll show us from the word. But it takes time, it takes study. It doesn't come in five minutes. Father, we thank you for our, our time tonight. And we pray that uh, the, your, your wisdom from your word would challenge our thinking so that we wouldn't just accept these slogans and the innuendos that are going on. Because someday, some of us here in this room may have to stand before a tribunal because we have taught our children what is right and what is wrong. And the state says we are wrong because we don't agree with the state. So Father, help us prepare for those times and to support one another as parents to encourage one another, to pray for one another as we uh, live out at this point in our national history. Thank you in our, in our Savior's name, amen.